Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history. I'm your host, Karen Peter. And here at Cup of Joe, we partner with the Historic Sites Foundation to interview the presenters from their lecture series. And right now we're interviewing the presenters for the spring 2022 lecture series. And our guest today is Keith Wilson. Now, Keith, I forgot to ask you before we began to record, do you prefer um, Professor Wilson? Do you prefer any uh, particular moniker? If, if you're my student, I'd say Brother Wilson, but you can just call me Keith. There's, that's just fine. We're, we're on the same level here. So All righty. Well, thank you, Keith. Well, that's an honor to be able to do that for a distinguished person as yourself. So uh, Keith Wilson uh, is, for a few more weeks, an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, where he has taught Book of Mormon, New Testament, and Old Testament courses. In 2008, he and his family spent a year at the BYU Jerusalem Center. That must have been uh, interesting. And uh, Professor Wilson, there it is. I put it in my notes, so we'll use it here because it's accurate for a couple more weeks. Professor Wilson was born in Ridgecrest, California, a uh, fellow West Coaster, and he is the fourth of 10 children. And you made a note that there were no earthquakes back then. So I'm going to have to ask about that. What? Oh, there was a, a pretty uh, violent earthquake about uh, six years ago, and it centered just uh, two miles outside of Ridgecrest. And uh, oh. it was it was a real it was a real shaker. Uh, nothing like that happened when I was there. The biggest earthquake when I was there, or biggest tremble when I was there was Barb Walden was born uh, right about the time I was going through high school. Uh, and she attended a small RLDS branch there, and I was in the LDS ward there. So it was uh, kind of interesting that we both came from that that uh, forlorn place in the desert. Oh, that's marvelous. I didn't know that. That's that's great. Thanks for sharing that. So you served a mission to Vienna, Austria, and received a bachelor's and master's degree each from Brigham Young University in German and health science. Your PhD in educational administration is from the University of Utah, and your education specialty is institutional change, where you research and write about the fundamental changes in the RLDS, now Community of Christ Church. You have a lovely wife, Linda Marie. Is it Criddle? Yeah. Correct, Criddle. And you are the proud parents of eight children, a foster child, and 32 grandchildren. And after 42 years of teaching at BYU, you're going to retire in just a couple of weeks. And you and Linda will be serving the church in a mission to Chile beginning this fall. So congratulations on that. That will be an exciting uh, post-retirement activity. It would be more exciting if I could say uh, something beyond uh, con mucho gusto. Oh, well, that's I'm, that's, I'm pleased to meet you. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so a few more things might be helpful before you go. Yes. The gift of tongues would be much appreciated. It would be great. Well, we're going to talk today about your lecture for the Spring Historic Sites Foundation series, and it is uh, Clifford A. Cole, 
architect and re-founder of the Modern Community of Christ. Now, a lot of folks are familiar with the name Clifford Cole. We've talked about um, Clifford Cole on Project Siam before, but I'm not sure that we've talked about him in kind of the capacity that you're going to talk about him today. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about Clifford Cole. And in your lecture description, I read a couple of things. So um, you noted that few members of the current community of Christ realize that one previous leader had an outsized role in transforming the reorganization church of Joseph Smith III into the modern community of Christ. Clifford Cole uh, did not uh, crave the limelight. Nevertheless, he, more so than any other individual, quietly led the RLDS leadership away from the Joseph Smith restoration, which uh, was more conservative, to the community of Christ. Uh, you call it the Christian community of Christ of today. And your presentation seeks to highlight the way in which Cole became the dominant leader during two crucial decades of redirection, um, 1950 to 1970. So we're talking my early years um, in uh, life as a member of the RLDS church. So first, my question is, as a professor from BYU, why Clifford Cole as your lecture topic? That's a good starting point. Uh, in fact, if I were to redo my historic sites lecture, I think I would have titled it, uh, as I've thought more and more about it, I think I would have titled it Clifford Cole, the Martin Luther of the reorganization. Um, now, even as you approach it from this standpoint, uh, there, there'd be quite a bit of pushback by other academics and historians, because I'm I'm taking kind of the, the, the great man theory, uh, and that is that individuals change organizations. And somebody like uh, a Danny Sidaway uh, and others sociologically um, uh, bent and things like that, uh, they, would, they would argue vehemently, oh, it's, it's cultural. It's uh, you're, you've got these trends going on in America, and, and then the reorganization has this awakening after the Second World War, uh, and you've got a, a, an international church audience instead of just a, a local audience. And so they would argue very forcefully that you, you, you can't just say one person changes the church. I get that. Uh, a church organization is a, is a large multifaceted uh, kind of thing. Some have described it sort of uh, using the image of a snake and the, and the body of the snake and, uh, and, and the tail and everything else. They're all uh, impacting the direction and movement. Uh, but, uh, but even with that taken into account, I still believe that uh, certain well-placed leaders, look at our own history. Uh, do that many people discount uh, Abraham Lincoln's impact or, or George Washington's, even though they were they were moving a country uh, and the country was also moving, uh, had lots of parts that were shifting. But nonetheless, these people at the helm uh, or discreetly at the helm, uh, they they play a, a, an outsized role, like I said, in the one title. And I believe that Clifford Cole uh, really is the the 
greatest point of impetus for change. Uh, now he's he's joined with a cadre of colleagues and people that are also in there. It was largely in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So women were not playing the same role. And I'm not trying to diminish them, uh, but they just were not getting into leadership positions. Uh, and so it, Clifford Cole had a cadre of people like Charles Neff and Dwayne Cooey and Maurice Draper and F. Henry Edwards. And, uh, and they actually kind of converged, coalesced, uh, and uh, Clifford, though, I believe was the point man. Now, initially, F. Henry Edwards was the point man. He was in leadership for such a long time period, but F. Henry Edwards still kind of put the brakes on traditional uh, restorationism, and Clifford Clifford came through uh, an upbringing that changed him, and he uh, especially along with Charles Neff, Charles did not have the RLDS background, uh, came to the church through marriage, really. Uh, and those two really saw eye to eye. And then as they worked their way in, others kind of coalesced. And and they, uh, folks, they changed the church. <laughs> there is just no getting around it. Some of the old timers, Sherry Moraine and others were talking a little while in the back, and they just they just openly acknowledged that people said, you know, W. Wallace was the president of the church, but Clifford Cole was running the church, and uh, and and I think through my research you can see that in a in a couple of really pretty strong ways. Now, uh, go ahead with you. Look like Karen, you might have a question that you were going to. I do because your background is in institutional change, and so you recognize, of course, all of the factors. So as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, um, of course, Israel A. Smith and then W. Wallace Smith would have been the the official. Uh, prophet presidents of the church during this period of time. Um, I don't know if it would have been Fred M. Let's see, would have been in there in the 30s? Was it Fred M.? And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh-huh. So, 30, so these would have two. been the like third generation leaders. They're Joseph Smith III's um, sons. And, and this was also at a, my point with that is that there's always some change that happens, of course, with different leadership. But F.M. Smith was very much a controlling uh, personality. That's how we understand him in the life of the church. Right. Uh, the supreme directional control. Right. And and trying to get things kind of reined in a little bit. Whereas W. Wallace is seen as more of an expansive leader because that was during the time when the church became to started growing globally. But what I'm what I'm hearing as you talk about Clifford Cole is um, if you didn't live in the independence area in kind of where the headquarters of the church was, you wouldn't have no, you wouldn't have recognized this. You would have put all of the changes on um, FM or Israel or Wallace. That's right. Uh, and, the, and just the presidents themselves are a fascinating case study. Uh, the way, uh, Frederick Madison is intent on controlling and and having a real uh, top down leadership, and uh, and F. Henry Edwards is kind of brought in right there as his aide, but F. Henry is is kind of in the sidelines, just almost like he's being trained and ex- and given exposure, uh, and then with Frederick Madison's passing, Israel is seen much more as a 
uh, as kind of um, patching things up and trying uh, a very peaceable president that wants to see the quorums back together and functioning and things like that. And uh, and then W. Wallace, see, W. Wallace is from the third wife, and he never, ever expected to be in church leadership. Mm-hmm. He's a hardware salesman out in out in Oregon, uh, you know, and they vote him into the into to be the the branch president or pastor, and he's at the back of the room reading a newspaper, and somebody says they're 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 nominating you, and he goes, "Well, I can't do that. I you know I work these odd hours and everything." Uh, he has no preparation mm-hmm. mentally and spiritually uh, for the presidency, uh, and yet Israel. I think senses his age and things like that, and uh, and so he reaches out and calls uh, W. Wallace as his counselor, uh, brings him in as an apostle, and uh, and things, and so and that's the first time. But W. Wallace, I think he sees this more as a family responsibility, mm-hmm. and yet he's not he's not a natural uh, religious leader, and so he. It's the it's uh, depending on how you interpret all these changes. Some would call it the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Some would call it the opportune moment when the clouds begin to part. Uh, and W. Wallace then allows his secondary leadership to just really step in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if this is well known in the church uh, of this generation, but W. Wallace in the auditorium there where they had the the church offices. He had a, a door installed on his office that was an outside door so that he could leave the office without the secretaries knowing it. <laughs> and he'd go out and, and, and take a break or go fishing or things like this. And I guess it was just the pressure and he felt like the machine was, was moving forward and it didn't, he didn't have to oversee every little yeah. micromanagement. And so it's kind of a, an interesting tongue-in-cheek thing to realize that he wanted to leave the office without the secretary knowing it. I love that. I wonder if the current leadership knows that. I'm not sure they have that same avenue of escape. I hope they do. <laughs> That's right. Uh, often I think they'd like that door. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, then, this is, the, this is the, uh, a really kind of quintessential moment when Things are just right. And it's in that process that you have somebody that's raised and very much a, a dyed-in-the-wool restoration member. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clifford Cole, his dad's working there in Lamoni at the Herald House printing and things like that before they go out and start to farm in Montana. And, uh, and so you have this really deeply ingrained RLDS family, and yet their children, particularly Clifford, in order to get an education, rooms and uh, and is housed there in Moorcroft with a, a Presbyterian minister, a very good and kindly minister that that really saturates Clifford with a whole different paradigm, and and Clifford is stunned. He has he has the and it's and it's fourteen fifteen years of age. It's an interesting one considering the history of the Restoration and Joseph Smith. But he has an epiphany there as he as he lives with that minister. Number one, he sees how good that minister is. And, you know, we've uh, in the restoration that there's that uh, nature of the restoration that says join none of them. Mm-hmm. But they uh, their creeds are an abomination. And so we have this either or dichotomy 
that God is stepping forth, the only true and living church with which I, the Lord, am pleased. It's interesting that he says collectively and not individually so that we all realize that the, there's imperfect, a lot of imperfect people in the church. But uh, nonetheless, there's that paradigm and it just has exploded when he's around Clifford or around Albert Nash's uh, dinner table. Uh, because they'd have dinner and then he'd bring out the Bibles uh, and they'd have breakfast and they'd have their spiritual moment. And Clifford heard somebody pray that really was deeply devout in his prayers. He saw him bring some girl, uh, a pregnant teenager in that had been shunned in the neighboring little town. And he, and, and he took her in when no one else would uh, and his kindness. And then he start and then he attended their youth programs and their, and their church with them. And he and he felt the spirit in their churches, and so he was he was thrown for a real loop. And this this had deep deep kinds of implications for Clifford. In his in his oral history, he muses, "I had a real crisis on my hand, and that was uh, what church should I should I should I serve? Because he wanted to serve in religion. He loved uh, the power of religion uh, and faith, and he said." Uh, he came to the conclusion that it didn't matter if Joseph Smith had the vision, it, uh, it because the RLDS were my people, and they had just as much the spirit as any other place, uh, and so I wanted to work. But see, he he just exploded this yeah. idea of one true church, and that right. God was that God was working in a specific restoration, uh, and that's uh, folks, that's the catalyst for where. Uh, Clifford Coles goes with his faith. He wants to bring the restoration back in line with sound Protestant theology, with more of a, and really to Clifford, the church is not a church, it's the church, which is the body of Christ, which, Universal is, which, church. Is, yeah, which is very much traditional Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so uh, that's that's the task that he undertakes, and he does it he does it very skillfully, but quite quietly. Uh, he doesn't ever stand up and pound on the podium. He doesn't try to oust W. Wallace or anything like that. But yeah, so that's that's been my study, and I've just been fascinated with it. And I realize that it's it's a two-sided coin in terms of the nuances. The restoration movements that have broken away from Community of Christ, they they sit there and go, we knew it, we knew it, he's the one that started this, and Community of Christ, uh, I think, need to be saying, "Wow, this guy did uh, step into the into the the convergence, the point of convergence here, and he he took us in the direction now that we that we love and that we really relate with." Uh, and so, uh, that's kind of that's kind of the Clifford Cole as I see him. So, when you were talking about this, um, his his exposure, if you will, to the uh, Presbyterian minister. And his understanding of of the church as the greater Christian body that that was fertile ground. Joseph Smith III had some of that in his own way of thinking about Christian perspectives. There are some quotes I've read from him where he talks about the good in all denominations and the good of all people of faith, and and he he seemed to have this broader picture a little bit in his own understanding. So there was some of that floating around, if you will. There had to have been some fertile ground for Clifford Cole's perspective to be able to take root so deeply. 
Yeah, yeah, that uh, that's true. Uh, Joseph Smith the Third is just he has he has a real peaceable spirit. You know, he recognized in Frederick Madison that that he was cut out of different cloth, and he implores him right at the end. You know. Don't shove it down the people's throat. He was so much about common consent and things like that. And, you know, Frederick Madison just did not hear it. <laughs> he just got his feet underneath him and was hell bent on, on a different mm-hmm. course. And, uh, and so, but, you know, Joseph III, he actually is gleaning a fair amount of that from Joseph Smith in his late Nauvoo days, mm-hmm. where Joseph Smith is. Uh, is coming out saying, you know, I will defend the Baptist. I will defend the Presbyterian and their right to worship. And I think in some ways, Nauvoo, because it's a whole city enterprise and not just a little part of the settlement like Kirtland, I think Nauvoo in some ways opened Joseph Smith Jr.'s eyes to, we've got to be inclusive. We can't, and the exclusive thing is what really caused the unraveling uh, Mm -hmm. there with with the neighbors coming down on him. But but a large part of that carries over, I believe, into Joseph Smith III and the likes. Uh, and maybe it's, I don't know, maybe some of that's coming through Emma also because mm-hmm. of her disdain for Brigham. And Brigham represented kind of one true church that has left and gone west. And, and we will be much more inclusive, you know. But, but you're right. Uh, those seeds are all planted uh, and brought forward. F. Henry is very, uh, is very inclusive and, and broad in that way. So, yeah, uh, just fascinating. Now, note, too, as Clifford's influenced by the Presbyterians, Charles Neff, who's he influenced by? He's influenced by the Baptists. He was raised in a, in a Baptist community. Uh, and then when he marries, uh, what was the gal he married? The RLDS woman. Uh, then he blends the two together and decides mm-hmm. to keep harmony by going uh, with RLDS, but so both of them really forceful people are are really uh, good leaders, quiet leaders. Both of them have similar experiences. And they come together, and uh, and that's the, that's the spark right there uh, that starts things changing. It first happens when Clifford, you know, comes. Uh, he's appointed. Reed Holmes is over religious education. Clifford was on the committee from Graceland there as dean of the students on the committee to help rewrite the curriculum. And then he's brought in as the children's curriculum manager. And then when Reed leaves 1954, uh, Clifford becomes the curriculum manager. And, oh, that is, that is, uh, he has the bully pulpit. Uh, He writes that first year, the book, uh, The Prophets Speak. Isn't it The Prophets Speak? Let's see. I just have it right here. I should, should give you the correct title. Yeah, there it is. The Prophets, uh, the prophets speak, 1954, and in that, he begins to challenge the LDS formal interpretations of Old Testament prophecies and things, and, and, he, and he takes Daniel chapter 2 to task, and he says, we cannot, you know, in no uncertain words, he said, this is, this is dangerous territory, because what happened is, in Albert Nash's living room, when they opened those Bibles, Albert Nash kind of nailed Clifford on well, so how can you say that this verse means the restoration and things like that? And Clifford couldn't defend it. Uh, and so he uh, he changed his his perspective, his mind there. And he then begins that 
kind of quiet crusade. He publishes that book. There's a, there's some pushback from it, you know, when uh, when old time seventies and everything here that that they're not supposed to talk about the and use that verse. Uh, but um, but it just begins this process. Now the the big change uh, happens when W. Wallace says, "Well, let's call him into the twelve and uh, calls Maurice Draper uh, in to be a counselor. And boy, all of a sudden you start to have this group that just are are, are really converted to the idea of changing the church. It's um, it's interesting because I hadn't thought of it this way. So I'm really I'm really fascinated by this. My mind goes to um, the hymnals the Community of Christ has used over the years. You begin to see the changes in the text of the hymns that we were singing. You can begin to see in the late 50s and early 60s and what I call the old gray hymnal you can see the language begin to shift into a more kind of Christian perspective from the from the old, more restoration tradition hymns that were written by authors from the church. Yeah. And I remember people being uncomfortable with some of that. Some of the old timers in my own congregation not, not liking some hymns because of that. They became um, interested in things. You can you see things reflected that are more mainstream Christian theology, but you also see things reflected that are more social justice kind of uh-huh. terminologies as well. A parallel, Karen, is in our church, in our in our most recent hymn book that now is being revised, but in the most in the current edition, for the first time, uh, How Great Thou Art was was adapted and, and brought into our hymnal. I can still remember an old uh, old time uh, member from the, my parents' birthplace, and I, uh, she was in my ward here, close to the university, and and we'd sing hymns together. And I'd say, "How about how great thou art?" And she goes, "I just don't like that hymn. It's way Protestant, you know." <laughs> and and now there's hardly a church member that doesn't just belt that out and yeah. just you know, yeah. feel great impetus from the spirit as we sing how great thou art but yeah <laughs> yeah similar similar responses i think to some of the changes the one i remember most was uh holy 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 lord god almighty and it was a person i'm not singing that that's old church of england hymn and they just would not sing it <laughs> okay so um but but we see those reflected we see it in our current hymnal we see the changes we've made reflected and kind of where we're going reflected but let's get back to clifford colt so you had his oral history you had some writings of his were there were there challenges about um learning more about clifford colt or it was was his life something you already had kind of formulated in your head and you knew what you're going to talk about for your lecture you know, as I first began my study of Community of Christ about 20 years ago, I just started asking people, uh, Dick Howard, Mark Scherer, uh, some of the some of the older gang, and who who made the difference and things like that. And then I went to Restorationists, and they they of course hold a a, a fairly jaded uh, story. And and more and more, I just heard the name Clifford Cole, and so. Uh, I've gone through the life and kind of progression of F. Henry and Morris Draper and uh, Dwayne Cooey and uh, Roy Cheville and and lots of those that were kind of in this point of convergence. But 
Clifford just kept coming back as the person. And then when I went in and looked at his time in leadership and the specific things where he was the point man, uh, it just started to jump out the page at me. Now you have, you have lots of things occurring in this time period. You have, you know, kingdom of the miss uh, on the Mississippi there in Flanders work. And, and, and that's a, that's a real push. And then you have plenty of other things, uh, but but it's this uh, Clifford just is at the cusp. Now, think of the, the years. So he spends, oh, let's see. Let me make sure and get my numbers right. But he spends, what's his total years in church leadership? He comes into church leadership there. He's under appointment. I think it's like 29 years that he's in church service. 22 of those are spent uh, either as an apostle or as a quorum of 12. 22 years right during this time period. And I think the Quorum of 12 is 16 years. But even as an apostle, he is, he has Morris Draper in the first presidency who listens to him intently. And he has uh, W. Wallace and he begins to, there's quite a shift. If you go back and look time-wise right there in 1958, by the time you get to 1960, the old members of the Quorum of Twelve are being moved out, mm-hmm. carte blanche, and they know it, okay, uh, because you've got this young cadre that have come in, and they have the ear of the First Presidency, and uh, and so there's that shift occurring, and and even F. Henry, when he is replaced and retired there in 1966, he went out with a little bit of uh, second thoughts because he can see that things are shifting so much, okay. To this young generation and things, he's not—he's not kicking and screaming, but you still catch some little nuances of, gee, are we changing things too fast? And then, and then, and then it's a torrential uh, speed from '66 to '70. Ooh, you have the position papers, and you have the basic beliefs committee, and you have the statement on objectives, and and by the by 1970 when they publish. What is it? Exploring the faith? Is that? I'm sorry to be rough on my, you know. Oh, should is I? Is that tell the you? Paul Edwards text? Uh, nope. Uh, it's the one the, before that. It's the, re, it's the rewriting of the epitome of faith. Ah. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's exploring the faith. That's right. Uh, I was almost going to tell you my professorial joke that uh, I use once a semester and try to hold it just to once a class, and that is, do you know why you begin to forget things as you get older? Right. So you can die with a clear conscience. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to tell my husband that. True, true Christian. Uh, uh, yeah. There. Uh, but exploring the faith, that is really the, the great, uh, what would we call it? Uh, that's really the kind of the, the bill of rights to the new church constitution. The, the original 13 uh, articles of the epitome of faith. They're expanded to like 19 or 20. The language, it bears the language of St. Paul's schools of theology. Mm -hmm. You've got all this Protestant uh, triunal God and things like that. Uh, You, uh, you forsake some of the, some of the things uh, uh, I shouldn't say forsake, but, but, but uh, scuttle some things that are very restorationist and the likes. And so exploring the faith is kind of the, the final stamp. Now there's other big things, obviously, that signal change in the church, but you notice the firestorm of the position papers and the restorationists. 
it's it's saints at the crossroads. I mean, it's it's 1970, so so the word is out, uh, and it's been established by Clifford and and those that are on board with him in such a forceful way. And and then you start to see the the fissures forming, and 19 and then 14 years later, of course, uh, it just it just breaks there with with the ordination of women in 1984. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to study. And I can still remember who's your apostle that just barely passed away. Uh, Dale Luffman. Yeah. Dale Luffman, Dale presenting at a John Whitmer. And just a year before the council of churches had admitted community of Christ and uh, how how you just exulted over that. We have finally, you know, and, and you had some in the audience that were of the restorationist band going, really? You know, we don't see this. We see this as the final nail in the coffin. But uh, but yeah, so uh, I see this really, largely the changes are occurring theologically, conceptually between 1950 and 1970. And then the external church changes occur from that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Women in the priesthood, the nonlineal succession, and renaming the church. Okay, and those see take uh, step in from 1980 to to 2000. So you've got these two, uh, 70 to 80. The 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 double boiler is just yeah. bursting, and then and then it takes off in 80. Uh, but but yeah, so it's uh, to me it's just fascinating. I. I, I think about it, and I th- now I'm a rest. I'm you know I'm of the Restoration ilk, even outside of of the of the face of the of the reorganization. Um, but I, I I undertook this project uh, in in a way for selfish reasons, and that was I wanted to see what changed people's view from from being died in the wool Restorationists to to very casually associated with the 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 19th century restoration and and so yeah that's the point that I've I began with but in the process I realized that gee these are my religious cousins and I mm-hmm. and I really I love it when some of the old timers in my John Whitmer presentations will come up and say you know our history better than we do <laughs> I, kind of think, I kind of think well I I, I do know some aspects now. Richard Howard, nobody ever touched Richard Howard and his understanding and things, and uh, and the first president Peter Schertz, uh, really good historians and things. But uh, but in my own little niche that I've pursued, I uh, I think I have those oral histories are fascinating. It's uh, it's hard to get a hold of them because uh, they made a commitment that. We won't let them be published and things like that. We we want them for for church archival resources. But mm-hmm. I was really grateful that the Cole family uh, gave me permission to to read and to quote from Clifford's uh, oral history because it is just rich in detail. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. What were the things that you discovered, both from his oral history and your most recent study into his? legacy of change that you really felt like you had to share in in your lecture that you just thought were really dominant themes or important points yeah um his quiet conversion to protestant christianity is the is the thing that just when i first read that and came across it all of a sudden the pieces fell into into place in my mind 
because uh, I just wondered why he would, why he'd take so much heat and everything because he was a quiet person and he was a, he was quite a gentle person from what I can read. He was a consensus builder as president of the 12 and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, it takes a lot of gumption to, uh, to take the heat of the kitchen all the time, you know, why not move into the living room or something a little mm-hmm. bit or the dining room. Or get a door outside so you can leave without your that's, secretary that's knowing. Right. That's right. But, uh, but I just wanted to know kind of what made Clifford tick. Uh, and, and when I, when I saw those youthful experiences mm-hmm. where he felt the spirit at RLDS reunions and things. And he, and he had deep, he didn't even mention uh, in detail in his oral history, the, the fact that he felt like he was called to the ministry at one of the reunions, uh, Devil's Gate reunion, I think is where it was up there, Wyoming, but he didn't go into much detail. I'd, I'd wanted him to kind of give me a little bit more, but, but he just said there, it was a turning point. But then you combine that with uh, Albert Nash, I mean, how many RLDS would be raised in a Presbyterian home during their teenage years, their high school years, for four years with a minister? That's that's exposure that you'd never you'd never consider anybody getting. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're converted from Presbyterianism to the Restoration, uh, then you're going to kind of see all the weaknesses of Presbyterian, and you're going to kind of go, wow, the the restoration has so much to offer, so much more. But but when it this was in the reverse, and uh, he and so yeah, it was it was a, a fascinating kind of little intersection. See, Charles Neff doesn't really ever have that. Charles Neff is Baptist, and it's the love of his life that that converts him. And yet he has the Asian and the war experience and the exposure there, and so he brings that back, and it's a real important component. But but for that reason, I, I, I can't bring Charles Neff to say, oh, he's 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 right at, at, at the cusp. I, mm-hmm. I see Clifford at the cusp there uh, of uh, of the of moving the church in a little different direction. You have people like Robert Flanders mm-hmm. uh, and and he certainly he certainly drives a nail in Joseph Smith Jr.'s coffin because all of a sudden Emma Smith's statements about polygamy and everything else. That was that must have been just really disquieting for, for traditional members to have uh, an in-depth study like that and to and to have to countenance the fact that that they have to rearrange their thinking about Joseph Smith the third and the likes. And uh, and we've had we've had some of those same things. Uh, uh, Richard Bushman's uh, Joseph Smith Ruffstone Rolling uh, was very disquieting for a number of church members to see different sources and different perspectives and things like that. And so it's a it's it's a rough thing for for traditional church members to be exposed to. Uh, it is. I still um, hear people uncomfortable with New Mormon history. I mean, that's just the reality, even though it's been alive in the life of Community of Christ for, what, 50 years, people are still terribly uncomfortable with some aspects of it. My parents being two of them, who uh, my father would be one of those traditionalists, and yet he had a copy of Kingdom on the Mississippi in his study when I was growing up, so he'd read it, but he still had a really hard time. He actually read Dan Vogel's Making of a Prophet a couple of years ago, and that 
that threw him for a loop. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dan's a Dan's a great non-believer, and so it's a uh, it's but, a uh, it's a lot to take in. Uh, Richard Bushman, uh, and the thing that I like too about uh, Bob Flanders and Richard, I see them both in the same category. They're they're, ex- they're they've done really in-depth research, and they're not there to to be an iconoclast and to just dismantle the whole faith. The 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 funnest thing for me with Bushman's uh, Rough Stone Rolling was this little diary that was published on the road with with Rough Stone Rolling and how Richard was so concerned about how church members would perceive uh, this this new paradigm and things and he was not wanting to 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 destroy or the faith or to tear it down nor nor was Bob you know it was a total shock to Bob the way he yeah. received and. And and really, and he ended up, you know, becoming uh, what was it? Was it Methodist or, or Presbyterian? Presbyterian? Yeah, and uh, and that was that was kind of painful to see because I, mm-hmm. I I went down and visited Bob just shortly before he passed, and it was he was he was long since past his prime, but it was he was an icon in my mind for somebody yeah. that was willing to to publish uh, solid research and uh, and to want the church to count countenance it not not necessarily wanting to undercut the church but just to say let's let's come let's come to new information that we have here and uh, and countenance it he was gracious enough to allow me to interview him when i was doing a master's in christian ministry and i was taking a class on community of christ history and he, I lived in the same town he did, so we didn't meet personally, but he talked on the phone to me several times to just um, share different things about his experience. And one of the last things he said to me, and granted, I'm, I'm a, I grew up RLDS, so I'm as, you know, embedded as in the restoration as everybody else, but I grew up on the West Coast, RLDS, so it's a little different. <laughs> and I remember him saying to me, well, you don't, you don't talk like any 70 I ever met before, which I thought was the greatest compliment ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he, yeah, he, he really was a delight and um, he did help us in our historical journey to make huge strides yeah. in, in who we became. So when you were going through this, it fascinates me that you've spent all these years studying uh, RLDS and community of Christ. So I found that I find that just really interesting that uh, that has been an area of focus for you. But when you were doing this and doing your research and listening to the oral history, did you learn anything new or did anything really surprise you that you didn't have an inkling about before? You want to know the thing that was most stunning for me and that I had to work very difficult or very, very hard to, to make sense of was in those, uh, uh, in 67 and 68, the Joint Council seminars and why they would invite the St. Paul's uh, professors to come in and teach the RLDS leadership. But I, I actually was able to put the pieces together pretty nicely after, after seeing Clifford Cole's background and his, his, his great respect for for a good Protestant, and then it combines. F. Henry was was one who really preached education. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and of course the the model is 
Well, it, it goes all the way back to uh, Frederick Madison, and he finishes his PhD before he will even accept the, the, the president's position. And so you have a, a culture of education being deeply implanted. And, uh, and so, and then with Clifford Cole feeling some, a lot of embarrassment about our 70, our appointees, they are not educated and we're passing on things. And Clifford has a real seminal experience where right after he was made an appointee, let's see which area it was. I think it might've been Iowa right up there. Uh, he was just across the state line from Charles Neff. They became quite close because they were both new appointees. But Clifford was moved into an area where they'd had a, a 70 come or maybe an apostle and make a rather flamboyant prophecy in a church meeting that there was a, there was a great famine coming and they had to hunker down and get their food storage and everything else. And, uh, and he, and he might've even given it a time frame. the next year or something, there will be this and this will happen. And if you're listening to the word of the Lord, I tell you the it's right at the door. And the next year they had the best crop ever and there was no famine. Uh, and, and, and Clifford had to go in there and, and work with a bunch of members that are saying, you know, what's going on and stuff like that. And those yeah. kinds of things uh, shape this young appointee. And then when he gets in, he says, we are not going to be the old firebrand preacher. We are going to be solid, grounded in both the scriptures and in our educational background and training. And so once again, that, that, that kind of that Protestant exposure. So he then really pushes and Richard Lancaster and others are some of the first ones right there in 1960 to go to go over to St. Paul's thing and uh, and start taking classes. You know, uh, golly, for most people in the Restoration, that would be seen as the as the height of hypocrisy to to go try to learn from people that their creeds are an abomination, you know, and stay away from this and everything and. Uh, Shoot, in our LDS temple films, we used to have a Protestant minister, you know, that was depicting uh, kind of being in league with Satan. And mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was that, it was that strongly embedded in the restoration that there's something much better than Protestantism. Okay. And so, and, and for the, uh, our LDS church to start having the, the, the first presidency in the Quorum of Twelve taught and instructed by Protestant professors you know well that one was off the charts but but it makes sense when you start to see what happened with Clifford and others uh, this uh, non-education kind of uh, part of the restoration colliding uh-huh. with this newer thing uh, and the likes they weren't they weren't very gentle though at times even though they were still very gracious in other ways I mean they came back from one session that's been noted by a number of people in their histories. W. Wallace is there with the Joint Council. They're being instructed, and I think it was, uh, uh, was it Carl Bangs or anyway, uh, one of them came back and they started an afternoon session. And he said, we need to get something kind of clear as we teach you. If it becomes apparent to you that, that there's a conflict between Joseph and the Restoration and uh, Jesus as taught in the Bible, which direction are you going to go? So, I mean, it was a very bold thing of saying, you know, uh, we're not totally on board. We see good in your faith and everything, but we're not on board with, with, with your basic tenets. And, and so he just presented the dichotomy there of, 
Which mm. are you going to believe and go with, Joseph or Jesus? And after yeah. a long pregnant pause is kind of the way some have described it. The W. Wallace said, well, Jesus, of course. Yeah. See, W. Wallace was sucked into a false dichotomy that many in the Restoration would believe that question embodies, and that is, how can Joseph be contrary to Jesus? I mean, if you if you believe his initial, his first vision accounts uh, and the Book of Mormon, it's it's not a contrary evidence of Jesus. It's another. So, but for W. Wallace, he wasn't a school theologian when that question came at him that bluntly. You know, uh, even clad in in what many would see as a false dichotomy. That, and that becomes symbolic of that turning point. Yeah, I, I've heard people talk about that moment um, in different contexts as well. But I'm also recognizing that in Community of Christ, even when it was RLDS, our what I what I share with even my own family members who are LDS is that we are the the descendants of disgruntled dissenters. That's that's where we come from. And because of that, we're okay not agreeing with something that Joseph Smith said. We don't care if it's written in the Doctrine of Covenants. We're okay not agreeing with it. And if it becomes prevalent that most people don't agree with it anymore, we're okay putting that down. We don't always take it out, but we're okay saying that doesn't fit anymore. We're just not going to do it. And off we go. So the word of wisdom was big when I was a kid. Nobody drank coffee in my church community. But, you know, that's long gone. You're going to see potluck. Every community of Christ potluck's got coffee going on. So <laughs> we put that down and we're okay. It's still in the Doctrine and Covenants. People ask us, well, how do you see that? And I say, yeah, not literally, obviously. So well, continuous revelation really is a principle that opens uh, opens the door wide open mm-hmm. to to change like that, and yeah. uh, and so that's that's very conducive in that sense. Uh, now it does it does kind of cut against the restoration impetus, and that was that God would speak through prophets to bring forth the fullness of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in in many respects. The the LDL or the restoration and those that cling to it, it's very much like a magisterium where it's a top-down kind of situation, which is very out of favor in today's churches. And yet the Protestant or the community of Christ has gone through more of a of a democratization where each voice is important. And so it it makes decision making tough, but but as the the voice of the community shifts, then then it it really allows that. The revelation on the blacks and the priesthood was kind of a, a great case study because community of Christ, uh, rest, the RLDS shifted away from that quite quickly. Uh, it was it was 19th century sort of policy. It was survival in Missouri and things like that. It became quasi-doctrine for us uh, mm-hmm. as we came out to the isolated West. Uh, and then in order to to with to withdraw it or to change it, it had to wait on full blown revelation, and and most don't respect that. They just feel like, oh, you are way behind the times. But but it was this, it was this adherence to top down revelation, right. not revelation from horizontal but vertical. And right. so it was uh, it was a, it was a fascinating kind of case yeah. study, and we still kind of cringe at 
being called racist uh, when the church was waiting upon revelation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to, um, I want to ask you, I want to get to some discipleship formation kind of questions, Keith, if you don't don't mind. So um, as you kind of step back and, and look overview at our current community of Christ, you're looking at it from outside, but you're looking at it from, and a long period of observing and being engaged with Community of Christ. So how do you see Cole's legacy shaping and forming disciples in Community of Christ today? I, I see it just, just very central and fundamental to the spirit of Community of Christ. Community of Christ is, if, if there anything, it's inclusiveness. We want to embrace all uh, of God's children. We do not want doctrine or policies that exclude. So things like the LBGTQ movement, uh, mm-hmm. things like race and those things, that's just, that, that's, that's the heart and soul of Clifford Cole. He wanted the community of, or the restoration to, to, to not be so inclusivist or not be so exclusive, but to be inclusive. And so you know, he's reaching out to Protestant ministers. He's he's rewriting the restoration and its uh, and its exclusiveness. Uh, he's that's just the spirit of of Community of Christ. I mean, uh, and when the Community of Christ has a movement for you know when you want to uh, pick up the seekers that are leaving the LDS Church because it's still quite formal and rigid. That's that inclusiveness. We we want we want to welcome you. You're your your uh, cousins here in the restoration, and you've uh, you've fallen out of uh, out of favor with your fundamental principles. But look, we have we have the the same pedigree, but we've moved with the culture and things. We're we're, we're much more inclusive. So I see that as being really the heart and soul of Community of Christ uh, today. I I and I and I love that the other disciple kind of awakening thing is man i have some really good good people that that i just think you know they were raised in my context they'd be lds if i were raised in their context i'd probably i'd probably be community of christ uh, uh lock mckay what a what a what a saint you know uh just so so respective of lds uh uh, views and things like that, especially with the with the sites and how we, you know, just uh, flood the sites with LDS members and things like that, and and and, and yet never. I mean, he must have answered that question a gazillion times. When are you going to sell us the Kirtland Temple? It doesn't ruffle uh, Locke. He just kind of smiles at him. Little did they realize they're looking at a direct descendant, you know, of Joseph. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't tell him that because in his words, he says, they look at me like I'm weird, you know, Uh, but, uh, but, you know, and uh, Andrew Bolton and uh, some of the ones that have been uh, real active in our interfaith group, um, they've just been really uplifting to rub shoulders with and realize we have Barb Walden, we have much more in common than than we have in differences. We have a volume coming out right now. I guess you're aware of it. That's that uh, I write just on the other side of the line from from Locke about the first vision. We just kind of go back and forth and, well, here's what we believe and here's where we differ. And it's it's very, uh, it's just very collegial. 
there's a lot of that in um, in the academic and historical aspects of our traditions where we share back and forth. And I think a lot of times people aren't aware of the collegiality that exists um, between our scholars particular in particular. So I have a I have a personal question, and that is how did your or how has your study of Clifford Cole and, and his life and ministry contributed to your own discipleship, your own ministry, your own faith experience? Uh, it's been uh, it's been kind of a a little bit of a of a lightning rod in that I have I've had my challenges to my faith. My PhD was uh, uh, I was exposed to those who. Uh, had left the church and wanted intellectually for me to lead in the things they had me read and study. And you're pretty much beholden to, to your committee and things. And, uh, and so I had those times and moments when I uh, was plunged into lots of contrary voices. And for me, it, uh, my own foundation turned me back to the restoration. I, I saw what I believed the others were offering, and it wasn't. It didn't feel nearly as rich and and uh, as as what I had. And so, unlike Clifford, it it turned me back more, okay, to my roots and my faith, and and that's what's really sustained me during my forty two years of of formal teaching with the Book of Mormon text and and treating it as a as a bona fide historical document and not just a, a piece of really uplifting literature or depending on how you, you countenance it. And so that's that's been a, a great journey for me. Uh, the other thing I love about my study with the RLDS Community of Christ is my own faith is isolated enough that they do not realize the 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 depth of faith in those that were restoration cousins and they are always when they hear that I'm a, a scholar somewhat a academic of the RLDS and community of Christ they want me to stop wherever I am in my lecture and just tell them more about community of Christ and RLDS uh, because we we just don't have any substantial congregations i mean there's one or two out here in the in the whole state of utah you know mm-hmm. and and so it's uh they've they always you know there's rumors oh well they're they can't turn on the air conditioning they've they you know they're struggling financially and 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 so it's just it, it's it, we need good information and so yeah. yeah yeah it's hard when you don't rub elbows with with people, you begin to other them. And I think that has happened in, in multiple contexts and has gone uh, in both directions. Yeah. And uh, the question I'm asked somewhat frequently too, like Locke, so when are they going to, when they realize I've studied the faith and, and know a fair number of the church leaders, when are they going to sell us the Kirtland Temple? And I said, my comment to them, have you ever seen Bridge of Spies? You know, that statement, last man standing, the Kirtland Temple represents the day of Pentecost in the RLDS community of Christ. Don't insult them by asking uh, even to the last member, when are you going to sell that to us? Because that's the day of Pentecost and that's the the spiritual impetus. Yeah. It has great significance. Definitely. Well, I want to 
um, give you the opportunity to offer any closing thoughts that you'd like to share um, with our listeners. But before I do, I wanted to ask, so who's next? So you gave your lecture on Clifford Cole. You come back from Chile from your mission. You have some spare time. Who are you gonna Who are you gonna research next and do a lecture about? Um, what I really should do, Karen, is if I were true to all the funds that my own university has afforded me quite quite generously, to I almost have a locker in, at MCI. You know, I just uh, I've come in and out of that airport uh, three and four and five times a year. I should put together. Uh, my composite study, which is to trace all of these facets, the the Bob Flanders, and I've done them all as individual lectures at John Whitmer, but but I haven't started or stopped to put them all in print and to do the to do the St. Paul's Meth, uh, School and to do the F. Henry Edwards and to do all these places that I see in this 1950 to 1970 time period where the the fundamental DNA of the restoration changes to become the community of Christ DNA. And so I should do that because I think I can do it without taking a poke at the community of Christ, the affection and feelings I have. And yet there's something about an outsider looking at somebody's history that you, it, it, it's it's more trusted in the aggregate scholarly world because it's it's never seen as uh, self-promoting or anything, and so you know I'd, I'd I'd love to do that, but I don't know, Karen. I I don't like criticism, and so I uh, when you when you write, you open yourself up for for that every, is true. every critic out there. Well, even if you don't write it, we'd love to hear a podcast when you come back and begin to put that together. We'd love to have a podcast on that. Where you well, put thanks. all of these pieces into play. There's a there's a lot of them. Uh, history is complex. So, any um, last thoughts before we close our episode today? No, just thanks for your for your uh, graciousness uh, in wanting to host me and uh, and get an outsider's perspective. Thanks for for sensing the importance of of history in our own composition. Within the LDS faith, we have a real push to do personal history, and I realize more so than, than, than I have in the past that if you don't record and review where you've come from, you, you, learn, you lose a significant portion of who you are. You know, we have those little quips about you know, he who doesn't know history is bound to repeat it and things like that, but on a personal level, you know, uh, I, I think about my ancestors that that, that were there in Kirtland and received a copy of the Book of Mormon and 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 the kind of changes they decided to, to make and and to uproot families and to just go with this restoration. And you know, community of Christ, if somebody walks into your church today there in the Midwest, they won't feel huge differences from other Protestant communities. You, you guys are most uh, churches are very welcoming and have have central core doctrines that are very similar. And yet, without the history of community of Christ, that's, that's where, uh, that's where your, kind of your soul is, you know, to, to know what's brought us to where we are right now. And, uh, and so I just love the fact that you're wanting to keep that alive. And, uh, and where I can, I'd love to contribute to, to support you because 
I want my children to remember their history. I want them to visit the grave out there and, you know, uh, at, at six water at six crossing there, uh, uh, in Wyoming and see their ancestor that froze that night, you know, but said to his wife, my children will be raised in Zion. You know, that's to me, that's just like, Ooh, it just kind of gets a hold of me. And I just think blood in my veins comes from that, that, that experience. And so, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm in hopes that one of the best that you have working within is, is Locke Mackay. You know, he is, he, he knows the power of history and he, and he wants to to keep that alive and vibrant in the, in the community. And so, yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to just be in those kinds of circles. Well, thank you for sharing with us here at Project Zion. Our Cup of Joe series um, is introducing community Christ history to an entire different set of listeners. And this has been a most fascinating discussion. And I've really appreciated it and getting to know you a little bit as you transition from your teaching ministry into wherever God takes you in the next uh, months as you learn Spanish and as you venture off into Chile. So thank you, uh, Keith Wilson, for joining us today. For our listeners, we encourage you to view Keith's lecture, and you can find all the Historic Sites lectures for the Spring 2022 series will be archived on the historicsitesfoundation.org website. And as always, this is Cup of Joe, part of the Project Zion podcast. I'm Karen Peter. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 